Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the worship that's already taken place. And now as we open your word and examine the life of someone that I would have to guess most of us have treated either like a superhero or a cartoon character and see him for who he really was and to see you for who you really are, I pray that we will come away comforted, challenged, maybe convicted in some cases, but definitely encouraged. So bless our time together. By your Spirit, may you move in our hearts, open our minds, speak to our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name. If you haven't already done so, take your Bibles or your electronic devices and turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 13. This morning in our Bible study time, we looked at a portion of the life of Samson. And in this time together, I want us to take one step back and look just a little more broadly at the story of this, the last judge of the book of Judges, before Israel falls into total disarray that will be rectified with the coming of Samuel and then um, the establishment of the kingdom, all the things that come as we get into the books of Samuel and Kings. I think if you look at the artistic and literary and musical tributes that have been made to Samson, it's obvious that there are at least some people over the centuries who have treated this biblical character with a lot of respect and a lot of interest. Uh, Rubens and another artist whose name I've forgotten both painted amazing paintings of the life of Samson. One of Samson and Delilah, another with Samson when he is killing the lion with his bare hands. Um, George Friedrich Handel, the same year that he wrote The Messiah, wrote a, a tone poem um, about the life of Samson. And John Milton, the great author of Paradise Lost, the same year, right after writing Paradise Lost, wrote a long lyric poem called Samson Agonistes uh, about the life of Samson. And so it's obvious that they saw in him something very, very important, as did the writer of the book of Judges. There is more written about Samson than any of the other judges. And he is the only one whose birth was pre-announced. The only one that goes into the details of his upbringing and, and the details of his, of his life the way that he does. And he is the one that basically culminates this chapter in the life of the people of Israel. But most of us, I think, tend to, as I said in my prayer, think of Samson either as a superhero or a cartoon character, or someone that we tell our kids, now don't be like this, as an example of what we should not be. And, and there is a, a lot of that in there. But I want us to walk through chapter 13, and then after that we're going to go over to chapter 16, and kind of look at the brackets of Samson's life, and see what God has to say to us about this Savior that really no one asked for. It starts in verse 1 and 2 where we have the setting of what's going on at the time of the announcement of Samson's birth. It says in verse 1 of chapter 13 of Judges, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines 40 years. 
Now, everything in that verse is bad. It's bad that they had done what was evil in God's sight. It was bad that they had done it again. And we know from studying the judges these last few weeks that this happens again and again and again and again. It is bad that the Lord handed them over to their enemies. And it is bad that it was for such a long period of time. Everything is hopeless. You know, several times in the story of Judges, the people have sinned against the Lord, and then they have repented. They have called out to God for help, and he has sent them a Savior, sent them a judge. This time, they don't even call out anymore. They're so hopeless, they don't even call out to God anymore. And then we take the story of the people, and we narrow it down to one couple, a man by the name of Manoah and his wife. In verse 2, it says, There was a certain man from Zorah, from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. And this couple becomes for us a microcosm of the situation of all of Israel. Hopeless. Barren. No chance for their name to continue. And Manoah and his wife become for us an example of the larger situation in Israel. And then look what happens when we get into verse 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, It is true that you are unable to conceive and have no children, but you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, please be careful not to drink wine or beer or to eat anything unclean, for indeed you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. What did they do to deserve this? (laughs) What did they do to have the angel of the Lord come to them and declare to them that her barrenness would end, she would give birth, she would bear a son? Nothing. This, beloved, is a picture of God's grace. You want to know grace in the Old Testament? Here it is right here. A couple totally hopeless, totally without any... inkling of thinking they will ever be able to, to, to preserve their name. Manoah was going to die childless, sonless. God comes to them and says, no, I'm going to give you a child. But we also see two very important things about this child. Number one, it is that he's going to be holy. Notice right there, it says, he will be a Nazarite from his birth and will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. He is going to be someone set aside for a special job. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this idea of being a Nazarite. But basically, a Nazarite was someone who was set apart for a special purpose for God. But not only was he a Nazarite for God, very uniquely, it says he will be a Nazarite to God. In other words, in a very unique way, this child was never really going to belong to Manoah and his wife. She would bear him, of course. She would raise him. Manoah would come alongside and nurture him. But there would come a day when they would have to let him go because God had a special calling and role in his life that he wanted him to play. And then they struggle to understand what this means. This long section from verse 6 all the way down to verse 23. We're not going to read all of it again, but we, we have uh, Manoah. Poor Manoah. He's supposed to be the head of his family. He's supposed to be the man of the family, and yet he has no idea what's going on. So he prays and asks the angel of the Lord to come back, and it does. But he comes back and talks to the wife again. 
And, 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 and then finally she comes to, to Manoah and tells him about it. And he then sees the angel of the Lord and he begins talking to him. And he says, tell me what we're supposed to do. And the angel says, well, I already told your wife. And, and, and he, by this time, poor Manoah is so distraught. He's, he doesn't know what to do. He's supposed to be the man of the house. He's supposed to be the one in charge telling her what she's supposed to be doing. Manoah finally says, who are you? And the angel replies and says, I'm not going to tell you my name because it is so wonderful you wouldn't be able to understand it. It is so glorious. It is beyond your comprehension. And Manoah finally doesn't know what else to do. So he says, hey, would you like to stay for dinner? And you know, all else fails, have a, you know, have a meal. He must have been a good Baptist. Um, and the angel said, no, you don't have to fix me a meal, but prepare a sacrifice for God. And then as Manoah prepares the sacrifice, puts it on his little homemade altar along with his wife, this being, this person that has been talking to him suddenly disappears through the flames, rises back up to heaven, and suddenly Manoah knows exactly who he's been talking to. He's been talking to none other than the angel of the Lord, God's messenger. And he realizes that's not good news. That's frightening news because hadn't God said no one can see me and live? Isn't it true that whenever God appears to someone, they have to die? And Manoah says, we're going to die. And his wife, who really has a lot more wisdom than he does, says, okay, if we were going to die, why would he tell me I'm going to give birth to a child? You know, Manoah is still gadding about. See, the problem is Manoah wants so much to be in control, wants so much to be in charge, and he feels so lost that his logic is flawed. Guys, let me just tell you, right now, right here, if you ever get into a dispute with your wife, just go ahead and give in to her right from the beginning, okay? Because she's probably right anyway, all right? Well, actually, I'm kind of teasing about that, but there is one truth I do want to say, and that is for those of us who are Christian men and who are married, you need to remember that God has placed in your wife an amazing insight and intuition and wisdom that he has given to her to help you as a couple. Listen to your wife. Listen to her insight. Don't ever be afraid to let her pour wisdom into you even as you seek to lead your family so they're struggling to understand what's going to happen how is this going to be and Manoah's wife knows just like another situation we have over in Luke chapter 2 when an angel comes again to a young woman who doesn't have a baby and says you will give birth to a child Simeon says to her when she goes to the temple the child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel to be a sin, a sign, excuse me, that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul. Isn't it interesting that in verse 5, when the angel says to the woman, the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth, but then in verse 7, she says, the angel said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. He will be a Nazarite to God from birth until the day of his death, it says in verse 7. Until the day of his death. It's like Manoah's wife already knows that this call on this young baby's life is going to culminate in his death. Interesting, interesting parallel. And so in verse 24, we see the dawn of the deliverance. It says, The woman gave birth to a son, named him Samson. The boy grew, the Lord blessed him. Then the Spirit of the Lord began to direct him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Deliverance, dawning. God brings this baby 
enables Manoah and his wife to have a child. He grows. The Lord blesses him. The Spirit of the Lord enters into him, directing him to do the very task that God had given him to do. Now, let me just stop right here and take a couple minutes and talk about what this says to us. What is the significance of Samson? I have a feeling the light's already coming on in our minds, isn't it? In a strange way, this young baby is a prototype of the one who would be the ultimate victor of our enemies. I mean, think about Samson. Let's just kind of, kind of fly our minds over the chapters in between 13 and 16. Rejected by his own people, turned over to their enemies, beaten, abused, scourged, and eventually killed. But in his death, there's the death of Dagon, the god of the Philistines. And so even though Samson obviously is not a perfect type of the one who would follow, after his death, the Philistines never hold the same kind of power they did before. Dagon was never again seen as the unconquerable god of the Philistines. Samson began a process that would finish with King David when David finally brings the Philistines under their control. But there were other enemies that would come along to the people of Israel. There were other people that would oppose them. And it would take another Savior to come, a Savior who would again die to defeat the final enemy, death and Satan. And in his resurrection, bring life. So you see, from an outward perspective, looking at the life of Samuel, we see someone chosen by God, given a special task from before he, even before his birth, has God's spirit in him to guide him to accomplish the purpose that God has for him. Well, but then we turn the page, and we get into chapter 14, and we find out that this young man is not only a savior, he is also a sinner. He is Samson, the sinner, and the saint. Sinner and saint. The fact that Samson was disobedient to his call to God, he didn't seem to really enjoy the role that he was called to play. But he also was a saint. Now, that's kind of hard for us to think of Samson as being a saint. What do you mean a saint? How, how could he have been a saint? Well, we know he was. How do we know? Well, number one, he was chosen by God. Number two, he, in Hebrews chapter 11, that wonderful chapter of the great saints of faith, Samson is listed in the list in verses 32 and 33. And we can see how God worked through him, used him, anointed him, even in his sinfulness, to do the work that he had called him to do. But Samson fights his calling, I think we can say. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Turn over now, if you would, to chapter 16. And let's just kind of walk through parts of chapter 16 to help us kind of see 
what we're talking about. This, this transition of Samson the Savior that we see on the outside to Samson the center. And what I want us to do is I want us to try. Now, I don't want to read anything in the Scripture that's not there, okay? I don't want us to speculate. But I do think we can see some things in chapter 16 that help us see a little bit of the heart of Samson, who he was on the inside. And it all starts in verse number 4 of chapter 16. In chapter 16, verse 4, we read these words. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the Sorek Valley. Well, what's so special about that? You know, men fall in love all the time, and especially this guy. I mean, this is the third woman that he's been with, at least the third one we know about. First, there was the woman back in chapter 14 from Timnah, the Philistine woman. And Samson uh, wanted her, told his parents, get her for me. She's pleasing to my eyes. Well, that's the word of lust, isn't it? That's the kind of talk of a man that's filled with desire. He wants her. Bring her to me. Give her to me. I want her. Then, at the beginning of chapter 16, we have this prostitute that he goes and sleeps with. This time, he brings money to buy something from a woman. Neither one of those first two women are even given names in the Bible. Just a woman from Timnah and a prostitute in Gaza. But then we get to verse 4. And something changes, doesn't it? Because now he falls in love. He truly loves a woman who has a name. Her name is Delilah he doesn't want her for himself. He doesn't pay her for her services. He loves her. Now, she most certainly was a Philistine too. But this is a different relationship. Samson now has finally sown his wild oats and he is wanting to settle down, start a life with this woman whom he loves and just be a normal guy like everybody else. That's not what God has in mind. Because you see, even though Samson loves Delilah, I believe wholeheartedly, Delilah doesn't really love Samson. At least not the way he loves her. He loves those 1,100 pieces of silver that every Philistine lord will give her if she will betray him to them more than she loves him. And so she begins to use his love. She manipulates him. She is wily and she is crafty. In one sense, she really is a prostitute. She just gets her pay from a third party. She gives him what he wants so that she can get from him what she wants. And Samson loves her. He doesn't, I don't think he sees at all what she's doing. I think that for him it becomes a game. And so he tells her one thing and then another thing. If they do this to me, I, I would just not have my strength. And she tries that and it doesn't work. And then he tells her something else. And every time he gets closer and closer and closer to telling her truth about what it really is that is the secret of his great strength and his ability to overcome the Philistines. And finally, we get down to verse 15. And she's continued to beg him and plead with him and shame him and all of these things. And she says in verse 15, how can you say I love you? When your heart is not with me, this is the third time you have mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so 
great. And because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out, he told her the whole truth and said to her, my hair has never been cut because I am a Nazarite to God from birth. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. Why? Why did he tell her? All these other times, he, he is tempted to tell her, but he holds back because he knows this is a very, very dangerous thing to do. There's a lot of risk involved. But this time, finally, he gives in. There are two reasons that are given us clearly in, in Scripture, and a third one that I think we can pretty fairly infer from what is said. First of all, it says, because he loved her. And secondly, because she continued to wear him out with her begging and pleading. But thirdly, it says at the end of verse 17, if I am shaved, my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like any other man. You see, I really believe, beloved, that a part of Samson's issue was he didn't want to be a Nazarite. See, if you go back to Numbers chapter 6 and you look at what Nazarite, the Nazarite vow was all about, you find out that a Nazarite was someone who had taken an oath for a certain period of time to do something for God unique. Okay, and I'm not going to go into all the details of that. We're not really sure exactly what Nazarites did, but we knew that it was something that came out of an oath that a man or a woman could make to God and during that time, there were certain things they couldn't do, the very things that were listed about Samson. But here's the deal. Samson never took an oath. He never had the chance. From the moment he was born, he was selected by God for a special task, a God-given task to save the people of Israel from the Philistines. The problem is, Samson kind of liked the Philistines. At least he liked their women. And he would have... He would eat with them and spend time with them. Only the Philistines started the fight against him, and he only fought back when he had to. But don't you sense, and what happens in chapters 14 and 15, everything that had to do with his vow, he went against. He drank wine. He spent time with, uh, with the Philistines. He was supposed to be conquering and befriended them. He dug honey out of the carcass of a dead lion, touching a dead, a dead animal. He grabbed the jawbone, the fresh, raw jawbone of a donkey, which he was forbidden to do. Everything that led to him being a Nazarite, he tried to walk away from, walk away from. He just wanted to be like every other man. He didn't want this call of God on his life. Why? Because he was a saint set apart by God but he was also a sinner. And that wrestling match in his heart, do I obey God and do what God has for me, or do I follow my own desire and be who I want to be? Well, once he tells her her secret, it's out. And she tells the Philistines, they come in, they shave his head, the Lord leaves him, they gouge out his eyes, they put him into slavery, they beat him and whip him, and in the end... He is dragged before the people in a celebration of the power and might of the god Dagon. But here's something interesting in the last part of the story. Look at verse 22. We're telling the story about them bringing him to Gaza. They bound him, 
grinding grain in the prison. But listen to verse 22. But his hair began to grow back after it had been shaved. Now, please, please. There was no magic in having long hair. That's not the point. The point is that God had a plan for Samson's life. And that plan to be a Nazarite set aside to God was symbolized by his hair. Now, just think about it. Just for a second with me. How much wine could he drink while he was in a prison? How many women could he sleep with while he was in prison? How many Philistines could he befriend while he was in prison? How many dead animals or dead bodies could he touch while he was in prison? You see, it took God blinding him and binding him in order for him to achieve the work that God had planned. Oh, how different Samson's life would have been if only he had yielded to God's plan in his life and seen the joy and the glory and the victory that God would have given him. But in the end... He achieved the purpose that God had planned. Because standing there between the two great pillars of the temple of Dagon, he prayed and asked God, God, give me a chance to finally fulfill the task you have for me. And he put his hands on those pillars, and with all of his strength, strength that was God-given, God-induced, God-empowered, he pushed and destroyed all the Philistines in the temple. And the scriptures tell us down at the very end, that he killed more people in his death. At the end of verse 30, and the death he killed at his death were more than all those he had killed in his life. But more importantly, he also killed the reputation of Dagon. And from that point forward, the Philistines never again had the same power that they had before. Now what does that say about us as we finish up? Well, it's interesting that in Milton's poem that I told you about earlier, the story is that Samson is in the prison and some Israelites come to visit him and they see him and his hair is long and matted and unwashed and unclean and he is filthy and they are just grieving for him and how his life has been so ruined because of his choices and the sin he has committed. But then, listen to this line from Milton's poem. They look at each other and they say, O mirror of our fickle state. In other words, they said, this man is a mirror of who we are. Because you see, think about it. Samson set apart by God to show God's glory over his enemies. Isn't that what the children of Israel were called to do? Were they not also God's people set apart for that purpose? Did they not also walk away from God? Did they not also turn from him and go to their own ways? Did they also not have to be enslaved and taken off to Babylon in exile? But did they not eventually do the very work that God had planned for them? I was thinking about this, and at the last minute, I I remembered the verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 48, where God says to the people, if only you had paid attention to my commands, then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. You see, just like Samson, Israel also was chosen by God. But there's one more step to this, isn't there? What about us? 
Aren't we also called by God? Aren't we also set apart? In Ephesians chapter 1, remember that great line in verse 4? It says, he chose us, meaning God, in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We also, like Samson, were chosen. Ultimately, it really was not about us. God set us apart to be his people. And just like Samson, I and you at times wish so much we could just be like everybody else. We forget the tremendous victory, the strength, the the, the joy, the peace that we can have in Christ. And we look at the world around us and we wish that we too could be like the Philistines. But God says, no, 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 no. I chose you before you were born. You were set apart. Peter says, we are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, designed by God to live holy lives. And our vow will end in this life when we die. And beloved, if we can ever see the wonderful strength, if we cannot fall into chapters 14 and 15 of Judges, if we can understand that we respond in obedience and in and lives of holy service to God out of our love for him, all he did for us, that one who went before us, Jesus Christ, who never abandoned his vow to his father, who never abandoned his calling to, from his father, never abandoned his commitment to his father, leads the way for us and says, follow me and you too will have victory. Today, this is the call of Samson to us. Samson the Savior, Samson the sinner, Samson the saint. The question is, how will you respond? God bless you.